Good morning. How is everybody today? You doing all right? Can take a minute to talk about it? <laughs> Welcome to Portico Church. Uh, it's my privilege to be with you this morning. My name's Jason, lead pastor. Um, we're in a series in Mark. Uh, so if you would like to grab your Bible, uh, open it up to Mark chapter 11. We'll be in verses 12 through 25 today. If you need a Bible, uh, we have some in the very back, so feel free to get up at any time and go grab one of those Bibles today. As we prepare uh, to walk into the Word of God today, I'm going to ask you a question that you probably don't get asked in church a lot. That's how you know it's going to be fun. But what makes you angry? Wait, wait a minute, are Christians supposed to get angry? That's, a, that's another question. That's another sermon. I'm just going to assume that you get angry that you're human, but what makes you angry? What makes your blood boil? You know how this works, right? Irritation. First, I have an irritation. It's almost like a mosquito. It won't go away. It just, it just kind of stays in my mind. It kind of builds pressure. And then I get anger. So I know when I have anger because it starts to be an overwhelming emotion. It's something that I can't not think about. And the next step is wrath. That's when you're angered has a target. It takes on a trajectory towards somebody or something. It comes at, comes out in your actions more than just your emotions. Well, think about what makes you angry today. And then think about this. In the text that we see today, Jesus gets violently angry. So much so that there have been people throughout history who have tried to take this part out of the Bible or tried to explain it away. We're going to do no such thing because we want to answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? If we're going to understand what that means, if we're going to have a better understanding of who he is and a relationship with him that's real, you need to understand that he got violently angry. You can't change that. And we need to understand what that means and why he did that. Um, It matters. It's disturbing. Just want to tell you that. We read it in context. So why are we doing this series? Well, here's the goal. We want you to be immersed in this Passion Week. All the way through to his crucifixion. So we're taking a whole seven weeks. We're two weeks in now to see what it was it like for Jesus and his disciples, all of Jerusalem, even the religious leaders. What was it like for Rome? What was it like to be there? We want to feel that and we want to answer this question. This is our one goal beyond that. We want you to be able to ask or to answer, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you have a good understanding of that? And if you're not a follower of Christ, uh, as Johnny said, you're welcome here. Uh, You need to get your questions answered. You want to do that in a community of people who are open to these real questions. And I'm just, this is a good time to be here because you're going to see Jesus. You're going to see him in ways that you probably haven't thought of him before. And you'll get a very good picture of who he is. Uh, So Peter in in chapter 8 got it right. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ. That was a turning point in, in Mark's gospel. But Peter did not know what that meant. He did not feel the gravity of that statement. He had a lot of assumptions and expectations that he attached to Jesus, and so do you. 
So we want to un- we want that to unravel for us, and we want to really know Jesus. Uh, we don't want our faith to be misplaced. Uh, we don't want to live for something that's trivial. We don't want our emotions and our anger to be wrapped up around things that are trivial. We want them to be wrapped up about what's eternal. So we're going to go there today. Jesus is going to do some business. We're going to go along with him today, and you're going to see some things about faith and fruit. You're going to see things like this. If you have faith, it will produce fruit, real fruit in your life. It comes out in actions. And as that fruit fruit comes out in your life, it will actually multiply faith, not only yours, but the faith of people that are in your sphere, in your circle, and not just in this room. And also your faith is going to move God. It's going to move God. So it's going to change how you know him, how you pray, how you think of him. So we're not going to pre-read the text today. We're just going to let the story narrate itself because it does an excellent job of that. Uh, So let's just pray and then we're going to jump in. So would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. uh, We thank you that you gave us this text that shows you angry. Matters. And uh, I just pray this morning, Lord, we tremble a little bit before you, that you would use your word today to open up our minds, to open up our souls, God, that you would, you would let it read us as much as we read it, and that we would be able to answer this question better. Who are you, Jesus, in a way that produces worship? So we lift this time up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just a little bit of review. This is Passover week in Jerusalem. The place would have been crowded. All the villages around the greater Palestine area clear and everybody moves into Jerusalem. It becomes so full that people can't even stay there. It's a, it's a time of worship and celebration. Their celebration is of Exodus being delivered out of the house of bondage. What God did to them to pull them out of Egypt. So it's exciting. It's fun. It's something they would look forward to. As we read Luke, we see that um, his fam- uh, Jesus' family would go every year. And Jesus even went there as a little kid. So this is something that Jesus is used to doing. And Jesus and his disciples are taking part in worship. They're on their way into Jerusalem. And we saw last week, Jesus kind of accepts this, uh, this, this role that he is the king of Israel. And not in a humble way, in a very clear way. He rides a donkey into Jerusalem. People are lining the road with cloaks. They are using branches and palm branches to um, sing to him and to proclaim Hosanna. God save us now. This is the king. This is the promised Christ who's riding into Jerusalem. But what that meant to them was probably very misunderstood. I mean, Israel was occupied by Rome. They were sick of people telling them how to live. And their expectation is that the king of Israel would come in and remove that oppression. So there's, there's a mixture in why they're doing that. But we see Jesus walk in as the king arrived in. He's promised king. He's the present king. And he is there now personally. And he ends last week by going into the temple, kind of looking around. Very, very weird. And then he rolls out. Doesn't say a thing. And he leaves back to the village to stay with his disciples. Now it's Monday. It's the next day. So that happened on Sunday. Here we are on Monday. Jesus is heading back into Jerusalem as other worshipers would be. And you're going to see three weird things, but they all go together. One is Jesus is going to curse a fig tree. Stick with me. Then he's going to walk into the temple and clean house. And they're going to leave 
And then Peter's going to see the fig tree again. And Jesus is going to wrap it up for him. Here's what I'm going to tell you. These are not disconnected. You are meant to understand what Jesus does in the temple by understanding what he does to the fig tree. It frames it. It's a living parable. So listen closely to what Jesus says. Because how he treats the fig tree and what he, is very specific. This is not an accident. What he says of the fig tree and what Peter says of it in the end will give you understanding of what Jesus does in the temple. Okay? So here we go. We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 12. We'll put it up on the screen. So this is Monday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Uh, Big idea, faith produces fruit. Faith is not just an intellectual ascent or, yeah, yeah, I'm going to live as Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, I have faith. No, faith produces fruits. Hear that. But but what's happening? Is Jesus hangry? It sure looks like it. Does Jesus hate trees? I really don't think that's possible, considering he's the creative agent of the Trinity. Something's going on. This is a living parable. Clue into this. It's not the season for figs. Jesus knows that. He grew up there. And yes, he's really hungry. This is a real event that Jesus uses on purpose to teach his disciples and us a real truth. So we need to understand some of the elements here. What's a fig tree? Why is Jesus using this fig tree? Well, this is the most common fruit tree in Israel. It sprouts sometime around March, and it would have two harvests, one in June and one later in the fall. So it's about this time of year when Jesus is rolling up on Passover. So it's probably not ready, and Jesus knows that, for it was not the season of figs. In other words, this. This is a symbolic preview. Jesus is using his own hunger and the fact that he's walking by this fig tree to connect to his disciples and to us the events that are going to take place in the temple this day. In fact, this is a preview of coming attractions for the temple. But what does the fig represent? How does it connect? Well, when you look at the old temple, or the old temple, the Old Testament, um, the figs almost always in Old Testament imagery, because this matters, represent God's people or Israel. Look at Jeremiah. We even read it today. Uh, figs would be God's delight, his people. Um, let me read to you Jeremiah 8.13. Speaking of Israel, speaking of his, his gathering. When I gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. That's judgment language. Here's what's going on. In other words, Israel, your actions are not compatible with worship. I come for a harvest. I plant you. And you're rotten. Oh yeah, you come to the temple. You come to worship. You follow the law by the letter. And this is the whole thesis of the Old Testament. But your heart is not in it. Your lips praise me, but your heart is far from me. And you know how Jesus, you know how he knows? Almost always. Your widows, the poor, the sojourners in your land, they're crying out to me. That's a problem. If you worship me, and there's that kind of need, and where you are, you don't worship me. 
So fig tree, this is Israel. This is God's people. This is his delight. And there's no harvest of righteousness. Because as they're in relationship with Yahweh, what happens is you get transformed. You begin to love what God loves. You begin to hate what God hates. And this flows out of your life. And this is not happening. God calls it adultery. Think of it in terms of relationship. So faith produces fruit. Well, what is faith? Faith is this. It's the soil you plant your life in. Faith is, again, it's not just an intellectual ascent. It's where you plant your hopes and your dreams and your expectations. It's where you plant your life. See, hope in our modern day means like an empty hope or an aspiration. It's something that I really hope happens. This is not how the Bible deals with faith. Faith is not an empty hope or an aspiration. Faith is where you anchor your hope. It's what you hold on to. It directs your life and your actions. It's where you plant yourself and your longings. It's the source of hope. It's what you continue to go back to when there's pain, when there's frustration, when there's struggling. It's what you invest your life into fully. And everybody lives by faith, even if you're an atheist. Even if you say, you guys are crazy. There's no God. Trust me on that. If you're an atheist and you're honest, then you are anchoring your hope or your faith in the fact that there is no higher power. So don't waste your time on Sundays. That is still faith. Nobody has enough data to deal with these these higher issues. Everybody deals with faith. Everybody has it. Um, everybody does this. So what is fruit? If that's faith, what you anchor your hopes to, what is fruit? It's the outcome of that faith. Um, a little more clear, it's the actions that grow out of your life, specifically a life that is transformed in grace. That's what fruit is. That's the kind of fruit God is looking for. It's the real actions. It's the real attitudes. It's the real thoughts that flow out of your life as your life is planted in grace, as you are in relationship with God, truly. Um, that's what fruit is. And hear this, if this is, if this is confusing to you, fruit never saves the tree. If that were true, then we would be saved by our own works. And we know that's not true. You know what saves the tree? The soil. You don't have to be a farmer to understand that. If you don't put the tree and the roots in good soil and it's not watered and those roots don't go deep so that it's plenished even in times of heat and drought, the tree doesn't survive. But that tree will be evidenced. The soil will be evidenced. The salvation will be evidenced by the fruit that flows out of your life. So that is the relationship. That is how faith produces fruit. Um, fruit is the evidence and the outcome of this faith. Now, Jesus was clear on this too. Luke chapter 6, listen to what he says. You've heard this before. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. And then he goes on to tell them, who are questioning him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't, don't do what I tell you to do? Why do you act as though you're planted in faith, but then when it comes to hard things, you do what you want to do? Right? A tree is known by its fruit. So this is the dynamic that's going on. Faith produces fruit. Um, here's what we haven't talked about in him cursing the fig tree, is it looked good. There was leaves. It looked healthy, it looked mature, and there's nothing on it. 
Ask yourself this. If Jesus approached you today, would he find a tree that looks mature, that is full of foliage, that looks healthy, looks like it's planted by a river, has the appearance of maturity, the appearance of fruit, lots of leaves, but nothing on it. Is that, is that what we would find with us? Because he's walking into the temple today again on Monday, and this is exactly what he finds. All right, so let's go there. Verse 15. This is getting good. Just, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be good. I know you've heard it before, but it's good. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house, hear that, listen to that pronoun. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Here's the question that's been bouncing around in my head all week, and I really haven't answered it yet. Do I want Jesus, or do I expect Jesus to tolerate my sin? Don't answer it for me. Do I expect him to tolerate my sin? That's on the surface of it. Does God, do, as God's people, can we just expect or do we want him to tolerate sin? That, that, that's not what this text is about, but that's the question that bounced in my head. Big idea. So if, if faith produces fruit, that fruit will always multiply faith. Fruit will multiply faith in your own life, and it will also multiply faith in those around you. It you will intentionally sow seeds in the lives of others. Um, like this. I asked you last week, if you went to Paris, what would you, the first thing that you would do? And like a bunch of you lied because I said I would eat first. And then everybody else came up to me and said, oh yeah, yeah, me too. So I know you just didn't want to raise your hand. So you have a lot of foodies in here. Um, so let's, let's, let me talk to you for a minute, foodie. You love food. You find a restaurant. You love it. It's local. It's amazing. Nobody knows where it's at. It's kind of new. There's not a lot of people going to it. The food is so good. It's the kind of food you love. It's delicious. It's the kind of food that when you eat it, you actually get satisfied and hungry at the same time. It's that. How do you deal with a place like that? What do you do? Anybody? What? You tell people about it. You're like, hey, you, you got to go to this place. Or maybe you don't because you want it all to yourself. But you're like, you're a good man. You're a good man. I might actually not tell people about it now that I think about that. You would sing its praises. You would be like, everybody, Friday night, you got to go to this place. It's amazing. It's going to rock your world. And it's cheap. It's, you would do that. you got to try this place. Friends, that is the dynamic of worship that we are to see in the temple here. Because when your life has been planted in the deep, deep soil of God's grace, when you know your relationship to him is based not on who you are, but on who he is, on his works, not yours. When that has happened, you will become an ambassador of God's kingdom. You will spend your life both implicitly and, and just singing it out, making God known. 
you will, you will be about showing people God's goodness. That is how fruit multiplies faith. This is, this is what Jesus expects to see. Here's what's happened. The temple, which is a good thing, has become the substance instead of the shadow. You know what I mean by that? The temple, which is, a, is an intense gift of grace by God. It's where God dwells with his people. It's where God accepts sacrifices, not just of worship, but, but sacrifices. Sacrifices are made that establish real and lasting fellowship between God and his people. This is their future, friends. This matters. This is not profane. And God is holy. And Israel knows that. And the temple reminds them of that. And there's procedures to be in God's presence. But it always was to be the shadow, not the substance of God's grace. It was always to be the shadow, the promise of the coming one. Not the thing we hold on to. But for them... Everything rides on this building. Everything. Think of what, think of the situation they were in. They had nothing left. Their whole culture was being Hellenized or, or, hey, become like the Romans because that's where the money is and they own everything anyway. They held on to this temple. Not this. So the temple was striking. It was probably the most stunning structure in the ancient world in the first century. It was retrofitted or rebuilt by Herod the Great before the birth of Christ. It was gorgeous. It was marble. It would take three people standing to hug one of the pillars. It was made out of marble. You could see it from everywhere. It was on a mountain. It was gorgeous. Um, This was what God has given to his people, but it became their symbol of security and significance, and it became their identity. So what's the backstory to the scene? Why is Jesus, why is he over, why is he doing this? Listen, Passover week requires things. You had to bring sacrifices, actual animals, or if you're poor, which most people were, you bring, you brought doves. And, And if you are a worshiper of God, they had to be right. You buy a sacrifice five miles out of town, it could die or be injured or be unacceptable for worship by the time you got the thing to the temple. So although the the, the, the scribes, and the, well not the scribes, the Pharisees and the religious leaders would set up and approve vendors along the Kidron Valley and different places outside of worship, almost like firework tents pop up like the week before 4th of July. They'd be out there and you could get your sacrifices, but they also put them all over the temple. They needed to buy these things and salt and wine to be able to worship God truly. And so imagine this, they're in the court of the temple and it's like a a circus fair. There's animals running all over. You can't worship God or pay your temple tax with normal money. You have to exchange that into temple money. And and, and, oh, by the way, they were getting a 48% kick on that. The priests of the day were and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the 1%, those that had were getting more and they're getting it off the temple. And here's what Jesus could not stand. And by the way, this is not about commercialism. I'm just t- this sermon is not, although you can pull that out of there. 
The place they set up shop, the court of the Gentiles, was the only place a non-Jew could go. The only place. If you were a God-fearer, if you were worshiping God, and you were serious about it, and you wanted to come for Passover, and you were a Hebrew, you could go to the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you look at this temple, um, just to the left of the temple or south of the temple, that big area, that's the court of the Gentiles. Filled. It's like a street fair. It's nowhere to, you can't even go in there. Not only that, there's a thoroughfare that went through there to get out of the city to Mount Olivet, which is very commonly used. So you have traffic, you have people come through here, you have people getting taken advantage of, and oh, by the way, mostly the poor people. And worship was being restricted. This is why Jesus had had enough of it. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it to dinner robbers. Was it wrong to sell sacrifices? No. Was it, was it wrong? No. But they were using the temple for profit and they were taking it away from those that needed it most. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 here. He's kind of mashing them up. Because ironically, think, think about it, Israel expected the Christ to come into Jerusalem, cleanse the temple of the Gentiles, get him out. They're ruining everything. And Jesus comes in. He's not cleansing the temple, friends. He's cursing it. Not because the temple is bad or the sacrificial system is bad, because it means nothing to them anymore. In Isaiah 56, God says, and we read some of it today, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others. See, here's how God's people are robbing. There's two ways. One, they're just crowding out the Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish, and they're using everything God had given them for profit. That's why they were excited about the temple, not to meet God anymore. Hey, side note, this is why we're called Portico. We're named after Solomon's Portico, the court of the Gentiles. That's where the first century church, that's where the Christians could gather. Because it wasn't just Jews that came to Christ, many of them were, but it was everybody. And so they would come to Solomon's portico, which is just on the right edge of the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus would teach there. Peter would teach there. There was miracles happening. It's a porch. A portico is a porch. It's a covered porch where everybody can gather. This is the big idea of portico church. Now you know. This is very easy to do, friends. They were finding their worth in being different instead of finding their worth in God's gift of grace. What does that mean? It means this. The moment that you believe God loves and affirms you because you're a good person, you have uprooted yourself out of God's grace. And you, I guarantee you, you will lose the motivation to share it. When you believe that God loves and affirms you because you're one of the good people, you are comparing yourself to someone else not to God, and you're pulling yourself out of his soil, out of God's grace, 
and you just, you just, you won't share it. And here, here we are, friends. In a very real way, you are the temple. Scripture says that. You yourself are the temple of the living God. You yourself are his ambassador, and we are filled with his glory. So as we get to the last stanza about the fig tree, just think through this. Is your lifestyle, how you're living, what you do and don't do, how you use your time, how you engage everything that God's given you? Man, we have to ask this. Are you restricting people from God? Have you set your life up so that you are restricting people from having access to the living God that you know? Because fruit, the fruit that God desires in our lives and your life will multiply in both your faith and the faith of others. Verse 20. So they're coming back in. It looks like they're coming back into Jerusalem the next day. So on Tuesday, the same route, same fig tree. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, if we, I know the text is up there, but could, how does the rest of this narrative go? You would think Jesus would be like, yeah, and he'd just start ripping trees out and just yelling at them and like, Peter, man, he's so graceful. God is both just and loving and merciful and good, and he did not come to judge you. He came to save you. And what Jesus says is so beautiful. Here we go. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father, your father, now he's calling him their father, who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. When the one thing has been taken away from you that has given you significance and surety, uh, I can do this, security and meaning and value in your life, when you're getting the idea that the temple is going to be ripped out of your hands, Jesus is like, hey, 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 have faith in God. You stand before him forgiven. Pray to him. I'm the temple. I'm God with us. I'm the substance, not the shadow, Peter. This is why I came. This is why I came. So he's lovingly teaching his disciples how to live without the structure, without the shadow. And here's the miracle in the scene. You would think the miracle is that there's this idea that you can move a mountain into the sea. No. Although that would be neat to see. Probably talking about the Temple Mount, but who knows? Here's the miracle. Your faith moves God. Your relationship is such that in Christ, you're trusting in him. Your faith moves the living God. Like, oh, I've got some theological problems with that. So do I. But Jesus said it, and he means it, and it's true. Your faith 
moves the living God to respond to you. So much so, and we saw this in 1 John, so I'm not going to talk about prayer much. Say, you need to stop doubting and start praying and trust me to move your heart. Trust me to move on your circumstances. You don't need a mediator. In me, you belong to him. So Jesus is the substance. Colossians 2.17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the substance. He's the true temple. He's God with us. Um, Somebody showed me a video this week. I like to go outdoors. I used to, I grew up, um, you know, fishing up in the mountains and hunting a little bit. And it was fun. And I really do love the outdoors. So like some of you who like to do that, when you have some free time, you turn on Netflix or boot up YouTube and you watch like nature shows and things like that. Don't you? Don't you? Just me? Okay. So it, it calms me down sometimes because I get angry. So I'm looking at this video that's very short and it's a video of this mama bear who doesn't love a mama bear, right? She's a mama bear with a cub. Ready? Ah. And they're on the side of this hill, this pine covered hill in Montana. And you know how bears do? They just forage and look for stuff and the cub's over here like messing around and not knowing what's happened. Ready? Ah. Isn't that nice? And then the camera pans back a little bit and there's this, this male bear, this male black bear about 200 yards down below in the mountain which apparently is a big deal because the male bears will kill the cubs. Um, I didn't know that. Never seen that happen. Mama didn't know that there was a male bear down there. She couldn't even see him. And then she gets his scent. Never seen anything like it. She turns and aims right at him. She takes off in a sprint Running downhill, by the way, I was told if you ever see a bear get downhill from it because it can't run downhill, that's a big fat lie. <laughs> she was doing like 30 miles an hour, covered 200 plus yards in about eight seconds. I've never seen anything like it. She charges this bear. The male bear runs up the tree. She's like, okay, we can do that. She goes up the tree with him. He gets so high in this large pine tree, they both start to bend the tree like that. And she starts smacking around at him. Then she scoots back down the tree. She's like, no, I'm not done. She goes back up, hits him a few more times. He tries to get higher. She did this three or four times, and she finally gets down the tree, and she gets up against the trunk, and she rubs her back up and down on that, which is basically her way of saying, this is my scent. You're never going to forget me, right? When you come down off this tree, you're never going to mess with me again or my cub. And she starts walking away, and she says, nope, I'm not done. Then she charges the tree again and just terrorizes this male bear. And she finally leaves, goes back to her cub. When she's out of sight, he gets off that tree and he runs and is probably still running. <laughs> this is what Jesus was mad about. Do you, know, do you know that's a picture of how God loves you? Jesus will violently remove everything that stands between you and worship. Violently. This is a picture. This is one of the best pictures of what Jesus is doing here. The temple that was meant to draw nations to worship God had become itself a God. And it was interrupting worship. Jesus, the priest, came to violently remove everything that stands between you and a true relationship, a full and final, eternal relationship with the living 
God. So who do you say that Jesus is? Friend, he's the high priest. He's the high priest who gave himself up to violent death and separation. Everything it took to destroy sin, to remove shame, to make your life fruitful. And there's one way to respond to that. You turn from sin and you trust in Jesus. You will see God's power no other way. Like, just listen, Jesus did not come to make you a better person. He did not come to make you a better version of yourself. If that's what you're looking for him, look elsewhere. He didn't come to curse or judge you. Jesus came to make you a worshiper. Stop wasting your life and your emotions on everything that's trivial and start living in fruitful faith. He's going to give you everything that you need. Faith will always produce fruit. Do you believe that? Do you see that fruit? That fruit will in turn multiply faith for you and those around you. And friends, this is the nature of that relationship. Your faith will move the living God. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, I thank you, Father, that you have purpose to send the Son and that, Jesus, you purpose to come and obey the Father and to claim all those he'd given you and to, in turn, present them holy and blameless back to God the Father and the power of the Spirit. This is so far beyond our understanding and our ability to barely comprehend. Jesus, I pray that we would let you be our curse, that we might live in faith, that we might live a life that is full of fruit that you take delight in. I pray, Lord, that when you come, and maybe it's this week, you would find ripe fruit that you would take delight and that we would take your words seriously. In the name of Jesus, amen.